Hey everybody, Kevin Rose here. Welcome back to another episode of Block Zero. Today's guest is Rune Christensen. He is the creator of MakerDAO, and this is a really cool project. I'm a big fan of stable coins. There has been points when I've been using cryptocurrencies that I needed to use a stable coin. A couple real world examples of that are if the markets are tanking and you're not comfortable where things are at and you want to sell your cryptocurrency, but you don't want to go back to your bank account, um, you can now do that on some exchanges and hold DAI. And that is their one-to-one currency that is tied to the US dollar. So uh, MakerDAO actually creates these things called DAI. And you can say, let's say Ethereum is trading at a at $1,000, you can sell one Ethereum and have 1,000 DAI. And just sit on that and it will always be pegged to the US dollar. So it's not really uh, subject to all the volatility of the crypto markets. This is handful, not only in terms of, of cashing out and kind of holding that as a currency while you're waiting to make a purchase, but also, as you can imagine, there have been times where I've purchased different things in the past. Let's just say it's an ICO that you're looking to buy into or an actual physical item that you want to buy online using cryptocurrency. You're either under or overpaying for that item, depending on what happens to the currency in the meantime. So there's been, for example, um, a ICO that I invested in that I sent them Ethereum and five days later, the Ethereum had gone up you know, 20%. And so I missed out on that upside. Had I just been using DAI, that wouldn't have been the case. So anyway, really fascinating project because the, the current leader in this space, Tether, they claim to have, um, they're another stable coin where it was one tether is worth one US dollar. They claim to have everything backed up by actual physical dollars in a bank account. Unfortunately, their firm that was doing all their auditing has dropped out. Um, there's been some speculation as to the most recent tether, tethers that they've printed or generated, whether or not they're actually backed up by US dollars. Um, we don't know. It's a closed system and we don't have visibility into that. That might change over time, but right now it's a little bit uh, potentially sketchy. And so I'm not buying any tethers. But the nice thing about MakerDown, what they've created is it's a series of smart contracts that are collateralized by Ethereum. So they actually have locked up Ethereum backing all of this die that has been generated. We get into a lot of the nuts and bolts here um, in this conversation. I will say I am a holder of the maker token. And the reason I hold that is because I want to take part in the governance of that token. And I also love how over time maker tokens are just going to get destroyed. So they become more and more scarce right now. They have a million that are outstanding. They're starting to be destroyed now. And so in theory, your value as a holder of that maker token goes up over time. Um, and I also really believe in this project. I have to say that if, you know, it's one of these buckets of of assets where when I think about five or 10 years from now, if cryptocurrency is as big as I believe it's going to be, certainly the role of a stable currency and stable coin backed by a bucket of assets really makes sense to me. And so I believe that this is the future and I like to invest in the future and um, ride that upside. This is not investment advice. Obviously, this kind of world um, with smart contracts and um, this world of, of leveraging um, kind of collateralized debt. Like this is all really scary stuff. And it's something that you should talk to your investment advisor about before you get into it. But let's jump into the interview. This is a really fun one with Rune Christensen. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. 
I'd love to start off by just talking about your background, like how you got in start, started with crypto, eventually up to today and what you're involved in. So I got into Bitcoin in the really early days in 2011 and uh, just immediately got hooked as soon as I saw a Bitcoin address in the wild the first time. Since then, I've just been uh, really involved with uh, like learning about Bitcoin and blockchain technology. And I invested a considerable amount of money into Bitcoin right before Big Bubble, uh, actually Mt. Gox oh, wow. uh, hack and crash. So I made like a huge returns and then held all the way down and basically saw all my profits disappear again because of the volatility. Wow. Crazy. Did you continue to hold after that point? or? So actually what happened was that I, I realized that Bitcoin, you know, with this type of volatility, Bitcoin was always going to have a problem of, you know, people just not happy being involved with, with something that is so volatile and uh, risky. So I started looking at other projects and then I found BitShares, mm-hmm. which um, was actually the first stablecoin project. Mm-hmm. So they had they had invented this basic idea of creating a stable asset that's pegged to $1. And then eventually uh, when Ethereum came out, me and some others from the BitShares community started basically building the stablecoin project, uh, stablecoin concept on Ethereum. Yeah, that was, um, I remember seeing BitShares, and that's still around today. It's actually still exists and uh, is, is being used, correct? Yeah, it's actually very successful. They have a decentralized exchange. They have the stablecoin, like the basic stablecoin principle that they've been following has has worked for four years at this point. So BitUST has remained one US dollar for four years. That's amazing. Can you walk me through kind of your project? Like, how did you kick it off and why did you decide, you know, given that that already existed in their kind of ecosystem, you just thought that this needs to exist for Ethereum as well? Was that the thinking there? Yeah, I mean, I think the the biggest problem with BitShares was it just wasn't really bootstrapped that well compared to how much potential the the stablecoin concept has. And another thing that I think is very crucial about blockchain technology and and decentralized applications is, so, is you know the synergy of how they interoperate and uh, plug into each other. And so when I started seeing that Ethereum was where all these new, like this new ecosystem of decentralized applications were going, it became very clear to me that that's where the demand for a stablecoin is, right? Because all of these, every single decentralized application on Ethereum they need to be able to provide their users with an acceptable user experience free from, you know, the typical crypto volatility that you'd have to deal with if you use, let's say, ETH. Right. So the really basic thing we've done at first, right, is we just build this stablecoin that's worth one US dollar uh, and then it's backed by Ethereum as the collateral. So the basic principle is, like, right now there's about 17 million DAI outstanding. Uh, so that's $17 million that's supposed to be to be kept stable in the market. And to, to keep that $17 million stable, there's about more than $50 million worth of Ethereum basically kept safe in these the smart contracts of the system and, and used to guarantee that the stability of the DAI will be maintained over time. And there is this purchasing power always available to help uh, protect the price in the market. Yeah, so I'd love to to get into exactly the nuts and bolts about how that works. So if you if you think about the ether being used as collateral, is that what's creating the die as well? So you come in and you create this collateral, and then it will generate and produce new new die. 
Uh, yeah. So, so uh, I guess one of the basic principles of the system is that there are two types of users. There are stability seekers who are really just regular people um, who usually want to do something else. You know, they want to like use like Augur, like a prediction market, or they want to use, uh, you know, do some online shopping or something like that. Mm-hmm. And in order to do this, they need a stable medium of exchange to, to you know, do whatever activity they want to do. Um, so they will they will get it, get their hands on die in some way on the market, and that could be they're buying it with dollars, or they're buying it with a cryptocurrency or something, and and basically they're just buying it off the market, and they are, can just be confident that when they buy it, they're always buying it for one dollar, and there's not going to be volatility, there's not going to be risk involved in, in holding it for them, um, and beyond that, they don't actually really care what you know how it works behind the scenes, mm-hmm. but then behind the scenes, so to speak, or on, in the other side of the system. Uh, there is a, a sort of their uh, their opposite type of actor, which is the, an advanced user that actually doesn't want uh, stability, but rather wants uh, actually wants volatility and wants leverage and wants uh, exposure to the collateral. So then, like you said, this type of actor, what he will do is he will, let's say he has, um, like he has 100 ETH, he will deposit it into the system, and then the system will say, "Okay, I can see. I see you deposited 100 ETH. This allows you to uh, just like fully autonomously generate some amount of die, and that could be, let's say, um, you know, if you put in like a thousand dollars worth of collateral, a thousand dollars worth of uh, of ETH, that could allow you to, for instance, generate five hundred dollars worth of die." Right. So you can say you put in one ETH, basically, and you can get in approximately, depending on the price of ETH at the time, but you get about $500 worth of, of DAI um, leveraged against that, right? Yeah. So so the leverage actually happens if you then take the DAI you just generated and then purchase even more ETH. That's when the, the magic happens in, in that case, so to speak, right? Because then now you actually have the one ETH or the $1,000 worth of ETH that you originally put into the system. And then you also have an additional $500 worth of ETH that mm-hmm. you just purchased. So in total, you have exposure to $1,500 worth of Ethereum in terms of price fluctuation. Um, but you, but the, your overall, you know, value. It's not like you've, 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 you know, created value out of nothing, right? Because you still owe. Five hundred dollars worth of dice. So you that's still have right. five hundred debt in the system. Right. So that that's whole, that one ETH is just locked up and can't be touched until that debt is repaid. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly how the stability of the system is guaranteed, right? Because that means now this five hundred die that's out there somewhere in the market, right? Because you because you went and bought some ETH, then someone else he got his hand on the die, and then it just starts you know circulating in the market, and. And basically, it means that that the, the total circulating die now has like it's it the supply increased by five hundred, mm-hmm. but the the collateral backing the total supply of die increased by one thousand, right? And and basically, the ratio of collateral to die remained healthy, and basically, the system as a whole is like like it's growing, and there's more people using it, but uh, it it stays in this like stable state of over collateralization of and uh, like safe ratios mm-hmm. of collateral stepped. And then the the way that you avoid there being too much die out there is let's say that you want to get your ETH back out and you have to go and buy die then to make that happen, right? And, and that goes back into the system then. And the the market cap at that point or the outstanding 
die goes down. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So if you want, if you have a, a like a leverage position where you have some debt that is locking down, let's say one ETH or a thousand dollars worth of ETH, then when you want to retrieve that ETH and you want to sell it on the market or, or use it for something, pay gas with it or, or, or something like that, then you have to go yeah on the market buy five hundred dollars worth of die back, and then pay down the debt. So the five hundred debt in your position, and that actually destroys the die, like you're saying. So that when so so basically when you remove collateral from the system, you are also removing die supply, and again making sure that the overall ratio of the system stays healthy. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. The reason that um, I love Dai so much and, and I wanted to reach out for this interview is like I, I just see so many issues, especially you laid out a couple of use cases initially when we first started chatting, but also in just the um, idea of using exchanges. Like there's so many times where I don't necessarily want to be in a currency, but I want to hold some USD on the side in an exchange that's in, let's just say, China or someplace where I don't live. And I'm kind of like a little bit nervous about the exchange in the first place and this is a way for me not to give that money directly to that third party, but keep it in a cryptocurrency asset and still have it pegged to the, the U.S. dollar, which I think is great. Do you see that as being a big use case for, for this um, diet as being like a, a, a way to kind of keep a little bit of USD inside of an exchange? Yeah, absolutely. And we, are already, like, we already have DAI on several exchanges and it's, it's trading nicely there. And I think in particular, what's really cool is that you can use it in decentralized exchanges, right? right. So they're like, so, so in regular exchanges, they do have access to banking. And uh, of course, there are still advantages to using DAI over like US dollars in a bank account because of, you know, third party risk and, and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. On a decentralized exchange, there just isn't that option of, of them hooking up to a bank account or something like that, right? Because it's decentralized. And that's where once you have a decentralized stablecoin, uh, you really unlock the potential of decentralized exchanges because now you can give the user the type of of trading experience they want, right? Where they can they can trade uh, cryptocurrency against you know stable assets uh, and uh, and like currency that they're they're used to sort of thinking in. Yeah. And also at any time they can get you know they can just escape to stability, right? If they're like a downturn or something, it's very easy for them, like for anyone to, to just cash out on a decentralized exchange into Dai. Yeah, I love it. I was last night, even I was just playing around with all this stuff in preparation for us chatting. And I was on Bancor and I created a, a CDP and I, I leveraged and, and purchased some ETH with the die that was generated from me locking up the ETH. And the entire time, the thing I thought was most fascinating was that I didn't have an account anywhere. There was no account creation needed. It was just all happening in MetaMask and in my browser and via these smart contracts, which is just awesome. You know, I didn't have to rely on anyone, any third party, really. It was just trusting these smart contracts were going to function. So um, that was a that was a really cool experience. So what, what exchanges are is Dion today? Where, where can people go and, um, and interact with this? I know, obviously, Bancor is one. Yeah, so we've actually deliberately been keeping it um, still like slightly on the, you know, on the, like on the smaller exchanges and trying to hold back uh, the spread of it. A bit because we want to make sure it's like a very controlled rollout. Uh, you know, we don't want any sort of uh, big uh, risky accident or something happening early on yeah, in curi- the life cycle of the of the product. Let, let's talk about that because I, I noticed that you know there. If I've been tracking it, this for weeks now, and I've been watching your kind of market cap and how many die are existing out there, and it's gone from like 
you know, 8 million, 9 million, 10 million, 11 million, it keeps climbing. So clearly there's more deposits, more people are using it. It seems to be working. Uh, there's There's been a couple little bumps up and down where it's shot up from a little worth more than a little over a dollar and shot down. What has caused that volatility? I mean, I don't think it was last. How long did it last, actually, the volatility? What caused it? And is that a concern as you scale this? So you're talking about the volatility in the price of DAI? Yeah, yeah. There's a couple, like if you look at the, the, the chart, um, you'll see a, a couple spikes up and down. And it quickly returns back to that stable price of $1. But I'm just curious what causes those little micro fluctuations in the price. Very early on, and then to get back to what exchanges we're on, right? So one of the first exchanges we got on is this exchange called Buybox, which is uh, it's a Chinese team that's building like an international exchange. Um, and uh, they, they're, they're a team of uh, spring out of OKX. And they're currently the the exchange with the highest volume of DAI to ETH. Uh, and at the time, which I think was something like two weeks after launch or maybe three weeks after launch, they were also like at that point, they were actually even more dominant in terms of how like uh, of how much volume there were around on different exchanges compared to buy bucks. Uh, but then what happened was the team doing the market making on buy bucks, their market making bot crashed basically. So just so suddenly, like so, so basically, the exchange went from having like really, uh, like a really liquid market to suddenly just having no liquidity, and then we basically uh, stood by and like watched another trading bot just go completely crazy and just it, it just like pushed the price around like crazy basically because it was expecting the market maker to be there but it wasn't. Um, so how does it push it, the price around? What what is happening in that case? Is it trying to sell off? die is it trying to like what how's it impacting your smart contracts so it so the thing is so what's important to understand is that in this situation absolutely nothing happened in the smart contract like the system in terms of the how the smart contracts were doing remained completely sound like uh you know the system remained over collateralized there was enough ethereum to back all the outstanding die and all these things another thing was that on every single other exchange the price remained at one dollar and people kept trading there uh you know with no issue for instance, there's uh, Oasis Dex, which is our own decentralized exchange, and actually that's the first, uh, the first decentralized exchange on Ethereum that we built something like two years ago. Mm-hmm. That's one of the other active Dai to ETH markets, and uh, yeah, the price has stayed at one dollar there. But meanwhile, on Buybox, because the the market making teams but uh, crashed, uh, it just went. You know, the the, the prices went crazy, and and um, yeah, I mean, so I that, guess that's a lot really of people came in and made some money. You know, because they could buy it really cheaply, basically, and eventually return back to one dollar. So let me ask you that—that's a bug with their systems. That has nothing to do with you. Yeah, I mean, it was, it's not even a bug with buy bucks, right? Like, it's just like a, a third-party market maker. Oh, it's a third-party. Okay. Yeah, you know, it's like just like a team that basically they—they they just have a bot and they're trading on um, on the exchange, and then the bot crashed. And then the the price on buy bucks specifically went below one. But on every other exchange, it stayed at one. But then, uh, if you if you go to like Coin Market Cap or something like that, you know they use an algorithm that basically weighs the you know weighs the price based on the all the different markets. So in their algorithm, they just display it as if you know the average price of Dai went down, even though it stays stable at one dollar on the other exchanges. For us, we almost consider it like a display issue, right? Like or you know like a combination of this. Uh, it's like third-party infrastructure having a, a problem in the early days and then 
coin market cap, you know, just like translating that into a a problem with the average price point of that. I see. What, what's to prevent bots from screwing with you in the future? Is this a one-off thing? Could this happen again and again? It's definitely a, like an adoption question where it's like when you really, really, in really early days where there's maybe only one market maker for each market, then this kind of stuff can happen if the market maker also, you know, don't have the tooling probably done. But as soon as the system just grows like to just a slightly larger size, it just becomes a complete non-issue because then it doesn't matter if just like if one market maker drops out, right? Because there'll be like five more that just steps in to, to pick up the slack basically. So it's really just, you know, it's just like because it was so early in the system. And, and you know, they, it was the reason why we launched DAI last December, or rather launched what we call single collateral DAI, so the beta version of the system, right? Mm-hmm. It's because we wanted to, you know, to test it out in the wild and basically catch exactly something like this happening, right? And, and uh, figuring out what we need to look out for. Are you at that point now to where you feel as though something like this won't won't happen again, or is this? Are you still kind of in the early phases of of making sure that there's enough market makers out there for this to to not exist or not to occur? So at this point, the market making ecosystem is a lot more healthy, and so something like this will definitely not happen again. I'm quite confident. But in terms of the overall system, um, you know, of what actually matters, which is you know, the, the, the underlying system itself and the smart contracts themselves, we still, you know, they, they are still in a beta stage. And in fact, it will remain so for, for a couple of months until we actually upgrade the system to the final version, which we call multi-collateral die. Mm-hmm. And there are, really, there are really two things that we are still like um, improving on. So one is just like getting the code just to, like, like not just, you know, um, like right now the code is probably the safest smart contract code that's been made so far, but we, we still want to take it to the next step and, and release something that can actually be formally verified. You know, so that means like mathematically proving that it's not going to crash or have some exploit that can be, you know, that someone can take advantage of. How do you do that? How does that happen? Uh, basically, you use um, like formal verification science, I guess you, you could say. Like it's 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 like a mathematical discipline of um, using um, what's it called logical proofs. So like, well, math, basically mathematical proofs, right? So, so in the same way that you prove stuff about various mathematical formulas, uh, you can do the same thing about code once you reduce the code down to what it really represents in terms of mathematical notation. Hmm. And is that something um, you have already begun, or do you have to wait till the code is finalized before you can you can go down that road? So we've been working on this for years, and uh, I am confident we are the the leaders in the space in terms of being like a, a decentralized application team that actually has been working on this seriously for an extended period of time with a, a big team. So we actually have three full time researchers that have been working on this for more than a year, and at this point, we are really far. We actually have some exciting uh, stuff that we'll release probably uh, around the time of the multi-collateral launch or um, maybe a little bit before uh, where we, you know, because I mean, one thing is we're building all this really amazing stuff to make sure our own system is just totally sound and safe and, and will, you know, can actually last forever and be like a permanent financial infrastructure. But we also want to make sure that everybody else gets to benefit from this, right? So, 
this is why we've always made sure to um that you know to, to focus on everything being open source and available for other people to use with good documentation so other teams can you know can uh, piggyback off what we've already been doing for the past three years that's great um the in terms of the multi-collateral system i'm really curious about this because it's something that um i had heard that you were working on so is the is the plan to bring other types of assets in as collateral to back the die then with that i take it you could bring in other cryptocurrencies like what what's um what's on that list yeah so i mean so that's basically the other thing that's you know that's making us continue to to say that the current system is still just a beta and that is because it only has one collateral type it really is you know uh, it's basically still bgsd in that sense right like it's, it's basically still the basic first stablecoin model that was invented four years ago where you have one type of lateral, and then you use that to cover back in excess a stablecoin. And the problem with, with only having one type of collateral is if there's a huge crash in that collateral type, you can actually see the system fail, right? Because, you know, if it, it doesn't matter if you have a ton of ETH, if ETH falls to basically zero dollars, right? Then no matter what, it's not going to be enough to cover a large monetary supply. Mm-hmm. So with multi-collateral, the goal is you know exactly to bring in other assets to act as a collateral and obviously uh, the most basic stuff we, we can like we'll add and that's really easy to add is you know other cryptocurrencies and like other esc20 you know other tokens on ethereum in particular right so something like augur tokens or omisigo tokens or uh, golem tokens you know and all those like well-known um tokens that from various decentralized applications However, there's a big problem with that, or rather, there's like there's a another side to it, and that well, is they're still that, correlated with with ETH, right? In some yeah, regards. exactly. All cryptocurrencies are correlated with each other. I mean, we all saw that, right? Like over the past month, when everything started crashing, right. and it's just like when twenty when Bitcoin's down twenty percent, ETH is also down twenty percent, and everything right. else is also down twenty percent, right? And and that's really a, just like a fundamental thing with cryptocurrency right because they're so similar as assets they're always going to be correlated Mm -hmm. so what we are really focusing on and what we really care about is getting uncorrelated collateral into the system and i mean yeah that's something we've been working on for also for years at this point right figuring out what that really means and uh, at this point uh we have some good leads like in fact we have some really good stuff uh, and we're feeling very confident about getting some really um valuable uncorrelated assets in there yeah, so a really good example is uh, digix yeah digix gold. i was just going to bring that up because they, they're actually taking gold and, and putting it on the blockchain right yeah and in fact we recently did a, a like a partnership announcement with them where we went out and basically said uh we'll give them at least a three billion debt ceiling so so we'll allow at least three billion die to be generated against digix gold collateral and that's just, I mean, we were doing that because the current system doesn't allow more than 50 million DAI to be generated, mm-hmm. which is a quite low number. And uh, it's, it's obviously because the system is in early days and that kind of stuff, right? But we want to sort of show that this is actually an infrastructure that's designed for massive scalability, right? So, like, these are the kind of numbers you'll be seeing in the future once we're confident that uh, we're ready to, to just serve, you know, the, the, the end user demand. And another interesting asset other than Digix Gold is uh, like real estate tokens. So there are various projects we are we are in talks with that have some really interesting things here related to that. 
So are there any so that, or any ones that are any real estate tokens that are you considering to be kind of like the leaders in the space at this point or the ones we are most confident in is called Raydao or Redow like R E I Dao. Mhm. And uh, yeah, I mean that so so they are just using a model we think is really solid in terms of um, basically legal enforcement. Right, which is what it's all about. Like, and it's the same with Digix Gold, right? The reason the reason why Digix is a really good gold token is because it's very clear how you legally enforce the claim, uh, you know, of those tokens to the underlying gold. And mm-hmm. the same with Raydao, they have an interesting model where they're using some, like, a very well established uh, legal framework to do what they want to do, which is to to take a token and basically like peg it to the exposure of real estate. Yeah, that's great. And once you can get these more stable assets in there, then you're going to be just rock solid. Yeah, exactly. And what we really consider to be like the holy grail and what we are working the most on is to find a framework where we can start to use security tokens. So it's, I mean, so gold tokens is great and like real estate tokens is great and so on. But the problem is that they are just, you know, it's like every time, like every time we find one sort of framework for that, it's still just, you know, one single class of assets, right? Sure. But getting a security token framework in place means we actually get to use the collateral, like the the assets of an entire jurisdiction as so you, collateral. You mean security tokens in terms of like things that are tied to government issued bonds, or what are you what are you referring to there? Yeah, I mean, I'm referring to basically to tokens that have a legal claim on an underlying security and that are fully legally compliant. Is that so happening? I haven't seen that anywhere. Maybe I'm just not in the loop. Oh yeah, there's a whole like it's it's actually a, like a, a field that's quite old. If you, so, there's this um, security token exchange uh, in the U.S. called T Zero, which is uh, probably the best example of like a live security token ecosystem. Are these blockchain based or no? Yeah, so so they are. I mean, so that you know, all security tokens are basically like basically what it means is you take a security and you say instead of tracking the security in sort of the uh, the company's own ledger or in a in a like a government run ledger we are now tracking the security on a you know on a blockchain ledger so that's basically what what these various projects are doing is they're just they're just putting the security the claims to security on a public ledger and and so far actually like i mean it's a cool idea so far but but uh, it hasn't really created that much like hype necessarily because it's actually limited what how what you can do with it when you just have it on a like if you just make a security token but there's nothing else like there's no sort of surrounding ecosystem mm-hmm. um it's it's not really that much different from just owning a security right and it's and but it's where it, it gets really cool is when you have something like us like something like MakerDAO that can then come and and uh, basically utilize that security token as collateral right and then suddenly you get this synergy where one project sort of you know exponentially increases the the value and the and the the utility of another project, um, and yeah. So I was saying there's also this there's uh, Polymath, there's uh, Neufund. Uh, so and Neufund is a, a German project, while these others are American projects like T Zero and Polymath. Uh, and there's actually a whole bunch of other projects all over the world, and we are basically following all of them, right? And like making sure that we know exactly how the space is progressing and. Um, trying to figure out which jurisdiction is going to be the first one in terms of getting like a really solid framework that we feel like we can, um, you know, trust to use in our system and, and uh, use to sort of bootstrap our system. 
we really like I was saying that's really sort of the holy grail of our system is once we get access to a like a solid security token ecosystem, we expect it'll just explode in terms of like we can you know we'll have access to all this collateral we we want to have and Dai will become so incredibly solid right like so stable and and um, reliable basically because you'll be able to 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 just see yeah it's, it's backed by bonds like government bonds corporate bonds uh, you know stocks from large companies and commodities and like all, all these different assets How? and it'll all be done in this extremely transparent and verifiable way where anybody who wants to use die you know they can if they're if they're sort of on the fence of, of whether it's stable or not right they can just go in and and literally audit the collateral portfolio themselves just by looking at the, the various uh, you know dashboards that sort of you know, to give you give them a close look at the blockchain and just allow them to verify that um, everything is over collateralized and and look at what the like the risk profile of the overall portfolio is mm-hmm. and uh, make their own decisions on how how uncorrelated they think it is. How do you prevent one type of collateral from dominating? Like, if you think about it, I, I would imagine that if you're bringing in you know, gold from, from Digix and these different security tokens and real estate tokens, like it's going to be way easier for me as an average consumer, or you're probably, well, that said, you probably have bigger institutions bringing those in. I'm just wondering how you, how do you get the right mix? Like, how do you make sure it's not 75% ETH and 25% gold? Like what, what's, um, is there a way to automate that? Or you just kind of let what people want, whatever they want to bring in, they can bring in. Yeah. So that's a really good point. And uh, this sort of breaches on another really, a uh, big part of the system that's a very interesting, you know, facet to it, which is the decentralized governance of a system. So, uh, you know, so there's DAI, which is a stable coin, but there's also MakerDAO, right, which is like the the platform behind the stable coin. Um, but MakerDAO is also an organization. In fact, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's actually the first decentralized autonomous organization. And uh, the, the whole point of, of having that, having this decentralized infrastructure and having this decentralized organization controlling the infrastructure is that we can do open source governance, right? We can have a whole community of people involved in the process of governing the system. And then the stuff they need to govern is exactly what you're talking about, right? Like, how do we prevent something like one collateral type from dominating the portfolio? And actually, even more importantly, also stuff like how do we set the individual risk parameters in the system such as how much you know like like how much ethereum do we require someone to post in excess when they want to generate die for instance mm-hmm. and especially like also um tailoring those risk parameters to the specific collateral asset right because obviously ethereum needs a, a completely different you know risk parameter than gold for instance right sure. because they're they're very different risk profiles yeah, absolutely. I I could see a world where you would allow people to take out more die on the gold side than you would on the ETH, right? Because the ETH's more potentially more volatile. Is that is that kind of how you're thinking? Yeah, to some degree, that is that is the kind of stuff that um, you know the decentralized governance could decide. But then, of course, there's also other interesting things, like something like you know ETH has the very interesting uh, feature that it doesn't have any counterparty risk in that sense, right? Whereas when you're using something like physical gold as a collateral. It's still, you know, there's still a chance that the counterparty that's, you know, um, keeping the gold safe suddenly, I don't know, you know, maybe they're they're actually fraudulent or something. So you, you know, you show up with your gold token, and 
and it turns out there's actually no gold there, right? And that's also a kind of risk that, that has to be considered. And basically, MakerDAO, as an organization and as a community, is specialized in exactly in mitigating this type of risk. And the way they do that is, so first of all, so there's this the, the MKR token, right, which is the governance token of the system, votes directly on the risk parameters. So the community uses voting to decide everything in the system. There's no management, there's no uh, central point of failure, anything like that. It's all done by the community voting. So, so let me um, step back here. So, you know, we, we've talked about the, the die token. So how do people become an owner? How do people, I mean, I know you can purchase the MKR token on exchanges, but like, how is that generated? Where does it come from? Who holds it today? There are a million MKR tokens generated when the project started. Uh, and initially it was distributed to like early uh, developers on the project and then eventually sold off like sort of in, in small private deals to various contributors who came in and sort of uh, wanted to support the system early on. So like I said earlier, you know, like we've been like working very slowly on uh, rolling out this project and um, we always wanted to avoid like hype and, uh, you know, like getting the wrong kind of attention early on. So we really focused a lot on, on just getting the right stakeholders in and, uh, you know, choosing who got to hold the early MKR distribution very carefully. So so that's why, despite being one of the oldest projects in the Ethereum space, um, we've actually basically stayed below the radar most of the time over this past three years we've been working on the project. And... Um, so yeah, I mean, so over time we we were first we selling off to like core community members. Um, then eventually we created Oasis Dex, which was the first decentralized exchange in Ethereum. And then people started being able to trade MKR on that exchange. Um, and uh, since then we've actually also started selling to institutional investors. So uh, most notably, we sold to Polychain very early in the of uh, in uh, I believe in the beginning of 2017. And uh, then we sold to Andreessen Horowitz uh, in the end of 2017, and also a number of other prestigious institutional investors in the crypto space. So are they uh, holding these tokens and then doing uh, actually do, placing their own votes and things like that at this point? Or So the voting functionality is not uh, like active in the sense that the community is... Is, you know like actively voting on everything yet at this point because it's still in beta we are like we're still focusing on getting the you know the core functionality of the system running before we sort of start really engaging the community and and uh, opening up governance to be to become this community driven um activity that it has to be in the long run because that's the only way it can possibly scale but basically in the short run um the foundation you know the core team itself is just taking care of, of doing the voting basically uh, and there's no easy interface available that allows that allow anyone to vote however we, we're working on it basically and we are committed to bringing it out before multi-collateral die launches so that when the multi-collateral die launches the community will be sort of fully self-sustainable at that point right and just be able to run the system entirely on their own that- uh, and then at that point like uh, actors like um, polychain and Andreessen horowitz they're basically committed to also participating in the governance process. So it's almost like having a board seat at the table if you hold a, a decent amount of the, the maker token. The thing that worries me, and I'm curious to get your take on this, you know, if you go out and if this gets in the wrong hands and the governance gets in the wrong hands and all of a sudden some big massive hedge fund comes in and buys up a, a, a bunch of 
uh, the MKR token, how do you prevent bad decisions or decisions that are in their best interest being made versus the community's best interest? Are you hoping it'll just be decentralized enough and enough people's hands that that won't happen? I guess my, my concern would be that a lot of people, obviously, if you take a look at the, um, the MKR uh, token, it is appreciated quite a bit and is now you know one of the top coins out there or tokens out there. I would imagine that you every day that goes on and that the larger your market cap grows, you're going to have more and more people that are passive investors. They're just holding this in there, just holding it for speculation purposes and not for actually participation purposes. Like, does that concern you? This is, you know, one of the main concerns and issues that we have to deal with in a really, you know, decisive way, right? So, I mean, obviously, it's something we've been thinking about from the beginning. Well, there's a whole range of of, uh, ways we're mitigating this. But I guess the basic way is that we are making the focus very strongly on the social layer of governance. So, like, it's not like we are not setting it up to basically be this type of uh, popularity contest, essentially, where people just go out and, like, it's like a popular vote for, uh, do you like this coin or do you like this other coin or, you know, something like that. And people just, like, vote for whatever they feel is the right thing. Instead, we are preparing to release like a very comprehensive um basically what you know like a risk assessment framework is like a you know like a theoretical framework that basically outlines and and you know even takes the first steps in creating these scientific driven models for how uh, collateral assets need to be risk assessed and then the goal is basically to ensure that the community as a whole is like fully on board with this like this need for the for the governance uh, you know, conversation to be entirely driven by facts and statistics and, you know, sound models that build upon the, the underlying theoretical frameworks um, and actually giving everyone a voice as well. So it's actually like our goal is actually not to make it so that you have to buy MKR in order to have it have a, you know, influence on the system. In fact, it's sort of the opposite. It's like the only thing you need to be able to influence the governance conversation is just to have a really good argument and some really good, you know, facts, models, uh, you know, data. I guess, is it, is it going to be a bottoms up driven thing where someone from the community can come up with an idea and who has to like, say this goes up for voting or will, will it be the majority wins on a proposal? Or, or are you saying that the community is just used to kind of like give their kind of blessing in the general direction, but still someone has to, decide on the core team, whether that's the best way forward, like who has the final say in all of this stuff? Yeah. So, I mean, so there basically is two layers, right? There's like the crypto economic layer, which is the actual smart contracts and their functionality. Mm-hmm. And in that layer, it's basically, you know, whatever the majority of MKR says, that's what happens. And, it, and it's not like there's someone who has to call a vote or something. It's just like at any point in time, the system is constantly monitoring what proposal has the most votes and then whatever proposal has the most votes is the proposal that's currently active. But so what, what I was talking about is that there is this, the social layer as well, right? Which is like, like some people sometimes call this a hive mind or something, right? Of the community, sort of the, you know, what's the, the conversation currently about, right? And that's what, where people, right? Regular voters or, or just like our institutions even, right? They will go to that when they need to figure out what to vote for. Right. Um, so, you know, so because, I mean, nobody will ever, unless you're actually an attacker, like unless you're someone who actually wants to harm the system, you'll never want to, you know, 
you know, just like vote, you know, you want to vote for whatever's best, right? Because you want to to have make sure your MKI appreciates in value and it doesn't get, you know, diluted, which is what happens if uh, the system is managed badly. Because you like MKI holders have to actually uh, foot the bill if there is bad debt that has to be bailed out. Then the system just forces MKI holders to pay for that through automatic dilution. So there is this social layer where we're sort of assuming that people actually want to cooperate on on managing the system in the best possible way, and they do that by using the you know like basically like like creating a scientific community, right? That is attempting to constantly reach scientific consensus on whatever risk parameters and like principles and models they can reach like near consensus on. And then when that is reached, you know, that's when the social layer basically, right? Like the, 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 the community and the communications uh, platforms uh, encourages people to vote. So that, so it'll be this sort of like, basically like long collaborative process where people come together to find out what to vote for. And then they voted in. Basically, so so the voting itself um, is actually more of um, like a security functionality, right? Where like they are sort of confirming by voting, they're saying yes, this is what our the scientific process has produced so far, and this is what we affirm uh, that we believe in the community with our you know theoretical frameworks, our models, our um, and the data we have that um, will be as you know like it'll be safe to introduce this stuff to the business logic of the system. I see. Someone could still buy up a large chunk of MKR, right? And just basically ignore the social layer completely. So just be like, I own 51% of the active MKR and I don't care what you guys are saying is the best. Actually, I just want to, you know, like I just want to attack the system or something. Like I just want to vote for some random coin that I have a lot of and just give it like the most crazy parameters so I can just generate millions of die for nothing. Um, someone could do that, right? And basically go into the system and just vote that at any time they could actually like try to do that. Um, and the system would accept it because again, it's, it's decentralized. There are no like gatekeepers or, or management, but the system itself obviously also has like, uh, you know, protections built in against this kind of stuff. So basically what happens when someone tries to do this is like when a proposal is voted in, it doesn't become active immediately. So there is a, a security delay on new proposals because the system like because the system doesn't you know it's it's like autonomous then it just assumes everything is a malicious attack basically so everything that comes in it just says okay that's great but i'm going to you know wait for the security delay before i actually um, sort of integrate this new proposal into the core business logic and then there is um, like there's a set of actors in the system that are that are basically chosen in advance by the voting process and by the, the governance process who call the global settlers. So they are basically, um, they, are, they are actually trusted actors to some degree, right? But, um, but they, what they're trusted with is a very limited action, which is basically they at all times have sort of like a nuclear button, basically, or like a panic button. Yeah, they have the veto uh, power if they need to. Well, they so they they can't actually veto because that would give them sort of undue political power in the sense like they, what they can do is they can shut the whole thing down. Well, so I guess you can call that a veto, right? But it's like a very very extreme and strong veto that actually, you know, that's irreversible. And what it does is it shuts down the whole system, and then settles everyone to the like the net value of the assets they're supposed to have. So that's why it's called global settlement, and that's actually also the functionality that sort of. 
uh, is the final resort in terms of enforcing the peg. Because what it means is, like let's say the, like the system we have running right now, um, if you have 100 DAI right now, you know, they're worth $1 on the market. Like, they would be worth $100 on the market. But the reason why that's the case is because if the system was globally settled right at this moment, you would receive exactly $100, $100 worth of Ethereum and just have that in your wallet. So like so you, before you had $100 worth of DAI, and then the next moment after global settlement, now you have $100 worth of Ethereum. Um, and that basically, and you know, that means like the guarantee that that can always happen and, and you ultimately will just end up with some, you know, some other assets, but exactly the same value. That's basically what guarantees you that even if some malicious NPR voter comes in and tries to attack the whole system, the worst thing he can do is just that he can end up giving you exactly the value of your assets. Hmm. Just, you know, like, I mean, but just the system will no longer be operational, right? So like he can deny you access to the service, but he can never steal your assets or, or cause you any sort of economic harm beyond uh, denying access to the service. And then once that has happened, right, you can just like redeploy the system. So you can just reform the system and then you can actually like do kind of like a like a hard fork where you just cut out his, his stake basically. So like you can, you redeploy the system uh, and you give every MKR holder uh, you know, MKR and MKR stake in the new system, except the attacker. You just like don't give him anything, right? And basically, what you've now uh, achieved is that he spent a ton of money trying to attack the system, buying up fifty-one percent of the supply. And all he did was he turned off the system for a period of time until it basically got back online, and then lost all his money. That's crazy. I mean, that's. It sounds like the the way that you're approaching this is one that, you know, in software development, we oftentimes think of just like, okay, we're the CEO, we're the founder, we're the creator of this, we want control, we have our board, we're building a business, we're hiring employees. But you don't think of it in terms of kind of multi-generation, like fully decentralized. And you kind of have to to think about that. If you're going to be a truly decentralized stable coin that is eventually holding potentially trillions of dollars there needs to be these safeguards in place and it, it needs to function like this. Is that, is that why you've set the system up in this way? Because this is a system that's designed to scale to just, you know, just a, a really large size, probably of something that's never seen before in terms of scale, right? You know, there's no, there can't be any compromises in terms of, of safety because this system will just always be like a giant target, right? And everybody everywhere We'll try to figure out how can they break it. So every single mechanism in the system has just been designed with that, you know, that entire, you know, that inception in mind, basically, right? So the system is it's like a it's like a fortress, right? Where every single like surface has been like heavily fortified and and then like I was talking about earlier, right? Actually mathemat eventually will be mathematically proven in such a way that we can go out and say, yeah, we can actually prove that uh, there's no way you can exploit this or there's no way you can you can abuse some vulnerability or rather i mean and then like i was talking about earlier like there if someone actually like takes over the governance for instance and of course they can force a global settlement right but basically that's always the worst thing that can happen is you can deny people access to the service but you can never cause them to lose money and they'll always they can always verify you know like you can at any point in time if you're use of the system you can just go on the blockchain, you can verify the collateral is there. And then you know that the worst thing that can happen is I will get, 
you know, let's say hundred. If you have a hundred die, I'll get a hundred dollars worth of the collateral into my account, and that's always the biggest risk I'm facing. Yeah. One thing I wanted to cover. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but uh, I did want to cover the. Do you just call it the MKR token, or do you call it the Maker token? Well, we call it both. Okay. Well, so the the Maker token I've heard um, can be. So you issued one million. Um, people are buying these. I'm actually a holder of some as well. Uh, because I love the project, but I've heard that they can at times, and I haven't really dug into this, they can be destroyed at times. Has that happened yet? Why are they destroyed? And will they ever be diluted? And what scenario triggers either one of those aspects? The whole point of the MKR token is that it sort of like inflates or deflates depending on the performance of the system. So yeah, so I mean, so the, 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 the purpose of the MKR token is of course that people with the MKR, they vote on the governance, right? And then if they vote well and uh, the governance is handled proficiently, so the system is uh, sustainable and stable and everything is going well, then basically what happens is there's just this, like these constant fees in the system uh, that accrue over time on, uh, on and these are these fees are on the positions for those advanced users that want to generate die with their collateral. They are basically like, so basically if you want to generate a hundred die with your collateral and uh, the, let's say the fee which you call the stability fee, um, is uh, 1% per year. Then if you, you know, you can, there's no time limit on how long you can hold your position and you can have this 100, 100 debt uh, that's locking down your collateral. But after a year, the debt will now have grown to 101 debt, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if this fee can only be paid with the MKR token. So the only way to, to pay the additional $1 uh, in, in debt or the one, you know, the one dollar in fee is by uh, purchasing some MKR token and then paying that to the system as well. And then, as as alongside the die tokens that are burned, the MKR token is also burned, and that reduces the total supply of the MKR token and sort of makes it, uh, you know, more scarce in this type of scenario. Oh, I love this as a as a holder. This is an amazing, amazing thing. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, so that basically means that you're really incentivized, right, to uh, to make sure everything is going well because when it's going well this isn't happening I, yet though right you haven't imposed these fees uh, it is actually happening and so far nothing's uh, been burned though two right? mkr has been burned oh really yeah i mean technically yeah two mkr has been burned so far and soon we will be making sort of the display update that makes it possible for everyone to see this in um, in front end such as coin market cap very cool and then when you said the 1% fee why is that annual why wouldn't you just have that being calculated on a daily or hourly or per second basis like well it is i mean it's we we sort of you know we talk about it or we define it as an annual fee because that's what people are used to right with interest rates Uh, but it's actually a per second basis so it is in the system it is actually like a fee per one second okay so Uh, if i take out a, a cdp right now um and you know five days go by well i then have to pay some very small fraction uh, buy a very small fraction of the mkr token at this point or does it only when, when does that interest kick in it, yeah i mean it actually kicks in after a second basically so you, yeah you have to buy mkr even if you have a loan for just like one hour or something but I see. this is uh, something that's obviously going to be automated right so like we're not going to force people to like spend time to go on an exchange and buy like 0.0001 MKR or something like that. 
every front end will just have this sort of automatically built in. So you don't even notice it's happening. On well, you have end. Oasis, right? So you can already do that. You could do that with smart contracts today because Oasis has MKR tokens for sale, right? Yeah, exactly. So basically what happens is like a front end, like the, the you know, the, the CDP uh, standard dashboard currently mm-hmm. um, will just have like basically built in on its on its front end to automatically, uh, you know, go on Oasis and buy some MKR for you and pay down the fee with that. And you won't even notice. So like for the user, you'll just be looking at, oh, I'm, I'm paying some uh, like 101 debt in uh, you know one fee one dollar in fee and a hundred uh die in debt right and uh you just like that's all you, you notice like you never realize that behind the scenes you actually bought mkr and um uh, you know burned that mkr and uh, like it'll, it'll not even take more time like it's instant it's it's like an atomic transaction so um it's just completely seamless and really just like a technical detail that uh, exists because it's necessary for the incentives of MKR to make sense, right? Because there needs to be this positive incentive uh, for holding MKR when things are going well. So the other important thing to to uh, to highlight in the, in the context of this, right, that there is this that when things are going well, the MKR supply is uh, reduced over time, right? There's constantly MKR getting burned, and that is something. Uh, and I was mentioning this a little bit earlier, right? But when things are going bad, so if MKR holders don't do so well and they they make a mistake in their you know their their models or their theoretical framework or or just like don't you know or just like unlucky you know and there's a huge crash or something then it's possible that the value of the collateral in a system sometimes in in you know in in some of the asset classes can uh, fall below the outstanding debt for that particular collateral, right? And, and and basically that would mean that the the entire collateral portfolio as a whole basically wasn't fully covering um or rather the claim on the collateral portfolio isn't fully covering the uh, the outstanding die supply. Right. And that's of course like a really like that's a really bad thing for the system, right? That means that your die suddenly isn't fully backed in the way it's supposed to be. Sure. So that's where the system just immediately automatically kicks in and just starts uh, inflating the MKR supply. So it just prints MKR and then sells it off on the market uh, autonomously to ra- to basically raise die to like raise capital from the market to cover in order everything. to yeah to like recapitalize the system right, right. and basically and we call that a bailout basically right like the system like basically if the system isn't regulated properly and there is some bad debt in the system then the system does a bailout but what's so important is that it's the uh, you know, it's the owners of the system that has to pay for this bailout, right? So it's kind of like if those people who were responsible for the financial crisis, you know, had to. Oh, I love it. You know, pay you know pay for it out of pocket, basically, right? They right. are the ones. They're paying for it with dilution, basically. Yeah, and 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 it's just like a really good uh, incentive alignment here, where right, the people who are regulating are also sort of insuring the system, and if they regulate badly, they take the hit right in their wallet. And if they regulate it well and they keep the system stable, then they're rewarded with, um, you know, decreasing supply over time. This is actually our sort of bid to try to solve, you know, the principal agent problem, which is like a very pervasive and, and uh, sort of long-standing and and um, and well-known issue in finance. Basically, where you know, like the people who are managing the money, you know, for someone else. Like basically, if you have someone else managing your money for you his incentive isn't really the same as your incentive. Like he's not incentivized to do exactly what's best for you. He's incentivized to do 
what's best for him, right? What gives him the most money sure. in the short term? And with Maker, that's different. MKR holders, they are they are incentivized to do the same thing as what DAI holders want, right? MKR holders, they just want long-term sustainable stability because that's in the it, it's in that you know scenario that they continuously uh, benefit. Yeah. If so, it, let's uh, pretend that um, just playing things forward a bit, everything is is working. You continue to scale at the pace that you are now currently in terms of you know climbing from nine million outstanding die to uh, what are you at now? Fourteen or something like that. Um, yeah, actually, seventeen. No, seventeen. Yeah. So it continues to climb. At what rate do because every time that a uh, MKR token is repurchased, that means one less holder right because that's destroyed how, how how far does this go i mean obviously you can't destroy all of the mkr tokens at what rate does this happen over time as you get larger and larger like i mean some people imagine that could be an issue where we, like all the mkr is burned or something but because what's burned is um, you know determined by the market so it's not like the system burns some fixed amount of mkr right the amount that's getting burned is denominated in die right because it's it's a die debt that has to be paid like sort of converted to MKR mm-hmm. and then burned. And, and basically, so what happens when you burn MKR is the price of, of uh, Maker increases, right? So the more MKR that's burned, uh, the more valuable the system as a whole will be. Uh, and so then, the less MKR you, know, you have to burn. Yeah, yeah, like less MKR, like fixed amount of MKR will be, be burned over time, right? Nominally, even if the, the fees drastically increase, yeah, like the nominal amount of MKR burned will probably decrease over time. And... Uh, yeah, just like get less and less as as it grows more. Right. But of course, in terms of like value, if it's managed well, the value would just grow over time. Mm-hmm. Well, this is such a cool project. I'm always curious, people that are really deep in the space like you are, um, what other projects would you say outside of your own? Like what are, the, what are the things that just really get you excited? You don't have to be invested in them or anything, but, but what are the things that you look at as being truly novel ideas? Because we see just so many you know, just random, potentially scams and all kinds of stuff out there. But what are the, who are the teams behind really cool projects that you're excited about? Uh, I mean, that's a good question because like you're saying, the really is the vast majority uh, right now are, you know, mostly about hype. Um, But I mean, well, I mean, I think, I think Radar, so what I was talking about for like this real estate project, I think that's really, really interesting because what they have done is they have found like some really nice, uh, a le- really nice legal framework that um, they can build their project around. And I think in general, there are so many projects that are just not taking uh, the law seriously at all, right? And that's what they, sh- you know, they should do that because there are consequences if you don't, you know, think about that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, in the long run, that's what's like. Even if you don't get shut down or something like that, right? Like you're never gonna get all the, the institutional partners or get like to a large scale if you're if you don't have your regulation and your your legal what is it? You know, like your house in order in, in yeah, that sense. That right? has I to mean, be buttoned just up, like, or yeah, you'll be shut down real quick. Yeah, it's just I mean, and it's and it's just like such a I mean, and that's one of the reasons why I think like ICOs are really it's like a it's like a, a I think it's like a short sighted gamble doing an ICO because. Yeah, it's great in the short term, right? You can you can create all this meaningless hype and stuff, but you also now have the stigma of being an ICO forever in your project, right? And prop and, and possibly you've broken the law in a lot of countries like the US, where they're basically just going out and saying that every single ICO is a, a securities offering, for instance. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so yeah, so that's what I'm saying. So like Radar, I think is a really interesting project because they got the, the legal framework in order. Then there is, uh, I mean, there's a whole bunch of decentralized exchanges that I think are really cool. And um, like Paradex is uh, like a, a, on at least on our team, we have a lot of, of Paradex fanboys, um, <laughs> which is it's. And and what's funny is though, like, is the Paradex is really not this, like, it's not a super novel concept it's just a decentralized exchange mm-hmm. but it's just like executed really really well and they sort of just like to like focused on it's all about making the user experience super awesome and the user interface really good and like the the, the website you know like the, the interface super responsive and the api super good and all this stuff and, yeah, and basically they yeah they've, they've just they're just very professional i think and uh, that's very refreshing in the space mm-hmm yeah, that's an issue with these decentralized exchanges is they can be so, so slow and just kind of like really cryptic in, in terms of the average consumer would have no idea how to use them. Yeah, absolutely. Any other big technologies that, that you look at, like in terms of any of the DAG related stuff that's coming up or the potential ways to scale Ethereum or R chain or any, anything else in this like EOS or any of these projects exciting to you? Yeah, I mean, I think Artchain is really exciting. I mean, I really feel like Artchain is the only, uh, one of the only blockchain projects that's like really pushing the limits in a way that makes a lot of sense. I think they're very interesting. Um, they have some legitimate improvements over sort of the, the fundamental principles of, of Ethereum, which I actually think not really any of the other Ethereum killers have that. Like, I think every single other Ethereum killer basically just Ethereum. Like, and, and all they're offering is like, we'll get to, to sharding a little faster or something like that. Um, overall, you know, I don't think that anyone's going to be in Ethereum. Like it's, it's long entered, you know, the, the VHS territory where it's just, that's just been, you know, Ethereum is just the thing that, that has been adopted by the industry. And at this point, I, the, the you know, the other blockchain technologies, I feel uh, the best about are those that sort of, deal with that reality and build their own blockchain in a way that is maximally compatible with the Ethereum blockchain, because that's actually really exciting to us as an Ethereum based project, right? Because we'd love to have, to be able to, you know, provide DAI on other blockchains in a really um, like decentralized way through like some sort of decentralized two-way peg or something. Who's doing that? Who's going to allow you to do that? Well, I mean, actually our chain is a, you know, is an example of, mm-hmm. um, of like a blockchain project where we are going to, you know, like work with work with them on uh, on how to make this really awesome Ethereum to our chain two way pick that will allow us to, first of all, put Dai on our chain so they get access to the you know the full stability of the entire the Dai network and uh, you know the entire collateral portfolio. But then also we can get access to collateral from our chain. So we can transport assets that are, that are on our chain and onto Ethereum and then safely use them as collateral in our system. What about NEO as well? Would you, would you do something similar there? I mean, we are actually looking at doing that for every single blockchain. Like no matter which blockchain it is, if it's just adopted even in the slightest and there are like just one or two like quality assets on it, we definitely eventually want to have access to it and use it as collateral in our system as well as offering DAI as a quality stable coin on their platform. Gotcha. 
Awesome. Well, this is a really exciting project. Um, I, I'm a, a big fan and will continue to track it. I'm, I'm curious if people want to follow your work. Is there a place on, on Twitter they can reach you? Or what's, what's the best way to kind of uh, follow the project and then also your work uh, and your stuff personally? So that we have a Twitter account just at uh, MakerDAO. Uh, we have a Medium account where we, you know, we put our, our new sort of updates, but they also go on Twitter. Um, I think if you want to just follow us, you know, you should just follow us on Twitter. If you want to sort of join the community, you should come to Reddit uh, and go to uh, r slash MakerDAO, which is sort of where the wider community coordinates and discusses the system. We also have a, like a chat room for sort of the, the, the community that's really active. But, um, you know, that's it's like a rabbit hole, right? And you have to start somewhere. And I, I think following us on Twitter or, or, or um, signing up on, on Reddit is uh, good places to go. Yeah, and also in, in terms of um, you guys have created some great videos. I, I highly recommend people to check out die.makerdow.com where these uh, CDPs are actually being created. And there's a video there. I mean, forget if you want to even actually create one, but I think watching that video and just seeing what's going on behind the scenes is a really cool way to learn a lot uh, in, in terms of just getting familiar with the system. So I, I appreciate you guys creating those videos as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good point. Yeah. Watching that video is a great uh, way to, to understand how it works. And um, there's also just makerdow.com where there are some more, you know, it's like explainer videos. Awesome. Um, however, we are, we are overhauling that website. And um, I mean, it has a lot of resources to go to. Um, but, you know, in the future, we're really going to, you know, over the next months, we're really going to sort of overhaul the way we present ourselves to, to regular people to just be, you know, much more um, friendly for like regular people onboarding. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Rune, thank you so much for being on the show. This was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot so much for having me, Kevin. All right, that is it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, the number one thing you can do is head on over to the iTunes store and give us a five-star review. Four stars is just okay. I love five stars. That'd be amazing. Um, and it will help get us uh, recommended to more people. And that means more people into cryptocurrencies, which means all of your currencies go up. I don't know if that's true, but it'll help us. Thanks. <laughs>